Welcome to Hobby Horse. I'm Matt Howie, and with me today is uh, Stephen. What was it again? Mazook. Mazook. Stephen Mazook. Stephen Mazook. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good. Um, so, uh, tell me about you. You, from what I can tell online, you are an iOS developer and a general web developer, and like you've made a million cool little things. Um, like, where are you? How'd you get started? How'd I get started? Well, yeah. What I do is uh, all sorts of odds and ends. I tend to think of myself as a character actor of the internet. <laughs> I got started way back in school, I would guess. Um, you know, typical sort of story of, you know, spending a lot of time in the computer lab, uh, just doing things. Um and going to university for computer science. I went to the University of Victoria, uh, doing a lot of co-op jobs there and a lot of work. Actually, a lot of work on the student paper as well, the oh, cool. Martlet. So, shout out to the Martlet. Did they have their own CMS or were they using like blog engines by then? Oh, we were... Was when I was there, we were... HTML? Yeah, yeah. I was, as the production assistant, that was part of my job, uh, was editing just the HTML from a template we had and just slapping it on up in there. Oh, man. Um, it was a little fun. I was actually the last person in the Mertlet line of production to be using the waxing machine. <laughs> what is that? The waxing machine is where you would cut out pieces of paper run it through the waxing machine so it would uh, slather some lukewarm wax on the back so then you could stick it to the big sheets of printed out articles. So a lot of times what was being cut out was advertisements. And then we would send the whole actual physical sheet to the printer where they would make photographic images of it to print out. So this was... Wax was like a post-it note so you could do layouts and move it around. It would just stick a little bit. Exactly, exactly. Oh, Wow. Uh, and that was just on the cusp of... What year is this? <laughs> this was 2000 and 2004, 2005. Wow. I thought you were going to start with a 19. <laughs> no, no, not that old. Wow. Uh, I moved on through doing working at A Books in Victoria, mm -hmm. uh, then coming over to Vancouver, uh, working for a number of contract agencies over here, working at Salesforce for a while, hmm. and now I am, you know, exploring my life. You know, this is actually a great time to bring this up, because I was, I was posting on Peach about this last night. <laughs> I was posting on Peach about how this podcast's description, mission statement, however you say it, is about talking to notable people about sort of their surprising hobbies or mm -hmm. side jobs or hustles or however you put it. Yeah. And it put it, it put me in a bit of an existential bind where it's asking, like, am I notable? <laughs> oh, come on. I wouldn't delete you from Wikipedia. I'm not on there. So, <laughs> you know, better people than me have been deleted from there. But the point, the, that sort of question, like, what am I known for? What do I do? You've got a million things. I mean, I was looking through your stuff and I was surprised at how many things I recognized, you know, over the years, like uh, that sprinkle generator is rad. <laughs> um, what else? You had a whole bunch of like little single use apps and uh, and you <laughs> that you even still use Peach is kind of notable. <laughs> it's like amazing. 
Peach is great. Peach is so great. It's such a weird forgotten corner of the internet. Um, my only terrifying thing is I use Peach mostly for confessionals and stuff, but it's sort of semi-public. I mean, it's public. It would no. take a lot of work for someone to find the URLs to my stuff, but yeah, Peach is fascinating. It's so weird. It's good. Peach is great. But I think like that's the only good corners of the internet now are the forgotten corners. Yes, totally. Yeah, Peach totally reminds me of early live journal. Kind of like, you know, people with some semblance of we're in the middle of nowhere so we can talk freely about our feelings. <laughs> exactly. It's a space where you can, you know, be yourself and yeah. talk about things without having to, not even that you necessarily have to posture on other social media, but you have to think about a lot harder about how whatever you say is going to be taken and, you know, what impression people are going to get because it could explode suddenly without you knowing about it. So what are you doing these days for uh, for fun and work and stuff? Oh, well, there's two main things I'm up to right now. One of them is being an iOS developer, uh, working at a agency here in Vancouver called AEQ. Uh, the other is working as a member of the Spartacus Collective, uh, and that is a all-volunteer-run bookshop here in Vancouver. Oh, cool. And so that's... As a collective, you know, a lot of the duties are shared and everything, um, but a lot of it is keeping the store open as a community space. It's sort of a general, broadly leftist, anti-capitalist bookstore, uh, keeping a lot of topics, uh, LGBTQ issues, um, anarchist, Marxist, all sorts of cool things going on in there. Do you have like a zine section to make it <laughs> to share We out? do. Sweet. We do have a zine section. Uh, if you're in Vancouver, yeah, come drop by. Anyone who's listened to podcasts, <laughs> awesome. Stuff. And what do you, what kind of iOS stuff are you making? Just like contract stuff, like someone needs a a little app to do some admin thing for twelve workers, or or is it like making big splashy apps for a national brand or what? Well, I'm working as one of the developers within the agency. So the agency works on a number of different things. Um, you know, it could be a video posting app. It could be. Uh, sort of a marketing sort of based app. It's a lot of different things right now um, they're working on. There's a lot of financial services products that they're working on as well. Have you so, made any cool, weird, wacky projects on iOS? Back in the day, and I think this, the site is still up. If you go to thefridgeapp.com, you can see an app that I made myself a few years ago. No longer available for sale, but it was an app that would... Let me ask you. Let me ask you, Matt. Mm -hmm. Do you have a fridge? Yes. Do you keep food in your fridge? Yep. Have you ever had the problem that I've had that you may have had that so many people <laughs> across this world have had of going to the fridge and looking at the food that you put in your fridge and finding that it has gone bad? Um, it happens so often with such regularity. We call the, uh, what's, the um, what's the drawer supposed to be called? Crisper drawer? We call that the rotter because that's where vegetables go to die. Well, let me tell you, if you went back in time there would be an app for you. Oh, man. That app is called The Fridge. So you're supposed to tap it as you put stuff, stuff into it? Yeah, that's a basic idea. Uh, had a lot of fun making that. Tried a few cool UI stuff that I still haven't quite seen duplicated before. Uh, one of them was making the colors of some of the areas of the app change as the tilt and axis of the phone change. So if you just sort of moved it around in your hand it would change it was oh, neat. Uh, an effect similar to looking at the phone through polarized glasses 
And then it would send you general general reminders when your kale is about to go bad. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god, the the aesthetics of the launch video are hilarious. They look like your uh, your chewing gum review videos. Right. Yeah, we can talk about that. Those too. <laughs> yeah. So you've been reviewing chewing gum for a couple of years, it seems. Well, technically, it's not chewing gum. Mostly, technically, it is uh, soft candy. It's called high chew. Mm-hmm. It's become a lot more well-known in North America more recently. Uh, they've done a lot more marketing for it over here. So it's not gum. It's like a Starburst, but like chewier yeah. or something? Exactly. It was actually created by somebody who was trying to make a candy, a gum that you didn't need to spit out. Right. Uh, Subway gum. Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's call it. You know, polite society gum. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes sense. It's a Japanese-based candy. So, of course, it comes in a lot of seasonal flavors, uh, a lot of regional flavors as well. Uh, and it leads to a lot of strange f- flavor combinations. There's a candy apple one that I still need to review. <laughs> I have it right on my counter waiting for me right now. You just reviewed some Oreos that were like grape and something. Yeah. Grape and peach. Was that you know, like off the shelf Oreos or were those like custom or something? No, those were custom Oreos. That's that's a really great idea. You got to patent that. I've never seen two <laughs> two flavor Oreos and bizarre two flavors. It just no. didn't sound like they went together at all. They didn't. That's the problem. Yeah, grape and peach do not go together. <laughs> like no. it's not a it's not a normal flavor. No, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> those Oreos came via TNT, which is a supermarket here in primarily vancouver i think they recently got bought out and so they're expanding across the nation i think but they are a asian rest asian supermarkets uh primarily chinese goods but all sorts of other uh foods there and so they'll often get in also seasonal or specialty flavors of things especially like you know the specialty kit kats which were recently written about for a very big article in the new york times yeah, like that's been that's been a thing for like a decade or more. Everyone who comes back from Japan has green tea or you know all the other wild flavor concoctions of Kit Kat. Like Kit Kat's it's like it's like a weird uh, background flavor for twenty five other flavors, um, which it just you know it just doesn't happen here. I think we get I don't know two flavors, light and dark maybe. Um, it's expanding. I was impressed that you you had Mr. Justin McElroy commenting on your your uh, your review videos. That was that was remarkable. Well, thank you. Which Justin McElroy? Um, that Justin McElroy, I think, isn't the Justin McElroy you're thinking of. Oh, uh, that Justin McElroy is still very successful in his own right. Uh, he is a CBC reporter. He is the Justin McElroy that actually owns JustinMcElroy.com. Oh, which no. the Justin McElroy of My Brother, My Brother and Me sometimes comments on on <laughs> his podcast about having missed out on JustinMcElroy.com. Wow, it's an evil Canadian equivalent of him. That's weird. We actually had a 30th birthday roast for our Justin McElroy. And at that roast, some of his friends had actually contacted the other Justin McElroy and had recorded a video of him to show at the roast of the my brother my brother and me justin mcelroy he was game for it that's oh he was so game it was great it was really great (laughs) that's so great yeah i ran into you at a couple xo xos ago right or a metafilter meetup or something and you mentioned um this uh annual tournament you throw 
uh, for a good cause in Vancouver. Uh, and last time I saw you, uh, I had a million questions, and uh, I think you proposed, hey, you should be on this podcast, and it was a perfect match. Um, tell me about the world of pogs. <laughs> well, well, tell me about the pog competition, at least. Right. I run Vancouver's premier charity pog tournament, Slam for Hope. <laughs> this year, we will be doing our fourth tournament, Slam for Hope 4, Return of the Slam. Two years ago, we had Slam for Hope 3, the final slam. And then before that was Slam for Hope 2, Slam Harder. And then before that, the premiere, Slam for Hope. And how I got started doing this was I got some pogs off of Craigslist and I needed to do something with them. You bought them for nostalgia's sake, probably? I bought them because I was just browsing the Craigslist, you know, as you do. And just they came up and I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? And this is like 2010 or something, well past the due date for Pog, <laughs> Pog paraphernalia. Well past that, yeah, 2012, yeah. 2013-ish. Uh, <laughs> now, Pogs, the life cycle of Pogs, there was an attempted comeback in 2005. Yeah, when did Pogs start? I'm, I'm too old for Pogs. I remember being like maybe starting college when Pogs, I feel like early 90s, right, maybe? Well, let's go back to the 17th century. <laughs> There's a Japanese game called Menko, which seems like it started around the 17th century. And what that is was playing cards where each person would have a playing card and you would try to throw your playing card down on the other one so it would flip over. Very poglet. And those playing cards could be rectangular, they could be square, or they could be circular. Then in Hawaii, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, there was a childhood, you know, schoolyard sort of game of milk caps where the caps that were underneath the lids of milk and juice bottles, you know, those were very much the progenitor of Pogs, where, you know, you'd stack those up and you'd throw another one and try to flip them over. In 1991, a school teacher, uh, Blossom Galbasso, I believe her name is pronounced, she brought it back uh, as a way to sort of have the kids of her school play this game apparently they were playing a fairly violent variant of dodgeball (laughs) then one news i believe one news article referred to it as slam ball Uh uh-huh where you were directly going for the body like just wailing the ball children are are terrible we had a terrible i mean we had you know as a child there was smear the blank you know derogatory term as Mm -hmm. a sort of just tackle the hell out of everybody it was a sport like exactly yeah we had a we had a soccer game where tripping was allowed i can't remember we called it but it was also like death ball or something we set up at my elementary school we set up a snow ring for a fifth grade fight club (laughs) that was a thing fifth grade fight club well we apparently the middle school kids had a fight club and we were very jealous of that whether we didn't have a fight club they weren't supposed to talk about it (laughs) so uh so wait, going back to the 17th century thing, were the cards like thick? Like we're not talking playing cards, right? You can't really. I don't think they were especially thick. Uh, you... I have not. I have not seen an example of a 17th century. Uh, so you'd card. have to have you'd have some weight to like bounce off of or something. I think it was more the they were big, so the air currents played a part of it. I think you were trying to like push oh. it, slam it down next to it, sort of, so the gust blew the other one over. So the 20s, 30s Hawaiian kids are playing something that's like, uh, just based on the bottle caps they had. Mm -hmm. Where was this teacher located in the 90s? Hawaii. 
Oh, okay, right. And Pog is pineapple orange guava, which is a popular mixed, you know, breakfast drink that's everywhere. It's super, super sweet. Exactly. Right. So it was still coming with the, I mean, the Pogs were still in the glass bottles in 1991? That is a matter of contention, I would say, based on the news articles that I've read of that time, where some people are saying that the juice and milk companies, they were still giving those away as sort of just novelty items, promotional items, Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of like a, you know, sort of nostalgic sort of thing. Uh, Not so much that they were packaged in the bottles themselves. Because apparently there was only one packaging company, a small packaging company up in Ontario that still even made them. (laughs) So they were getting them all from there. So this teacher introduces it as better than death balls, dodgeball. And it caught on. How is it like gambling? Because I remember that was sort of the, the, you know, the parental um, hysteria wave of it was like, it came out, every kid was doing it and collecting them and stuff. And then it was like considered gambling and outlawed at schools. Because is it like marbles where you lose the good ones if you lose a game? Yeah. If you play for keeps, yes. <laughs> because how the game is played is each person gets 10 pogs. They put them all into one pile of 20 pogs. And then they take turns throwing a slammer, a plastic or metal disc, to try and flip them over. And any you flip over, you've won those. And if you're playing for keeps, you keep them at the end of the game. Does it matter whose pogs are whose? Like when you go to slam it? Like, do you flipping your own over too? No, just whichever ones you flip over. Okay. Those are the ones. So it's sort of a form of gambling because it is a very luck. It can be a very luck-based game. I think, especially for kids... You know, you're not necessarily going to have the control of really slamming it down the way you'd want. I think like a lot of times people are winding up for just hoping for a big lucky strike. So wait, you don't get to keep the slammer thing, right? You only keep the cardboard cheap fogs? Oh, well, but yes. Or is the winner supposed to go for the slammer? Like they're supposed to lose that in the battle too? Nope, nope. The the slammer stays. But the pogs themselves, there are a wide variety of pogs, right? You go from like the sort of cheapest cardboard ones to some very complicated ones, hologram pogs, foil pogs, sawtooth cut pogs, lenticular pogs. Like there are a lot of pogs that are more valuable to the person that has them than the slammer itself. Huh. So, um... Oh, what was the heyday of this? Was it like 91 and 95-ish or so? Yeah, I believe 1993 is when it really started to catch on outside of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Uh, 94, 95 was the heyday. And I believe that 1997 was pretty much the end of it. That was when uh, Canada Games, the company that was mainly producing the POG branded POGs, the official POGs, they went bankrupt that year. Oh, did this teacher who started it, like, get any rights to any of this at all? Well, uh, actually, the teacher who started it passed away in 1994 from a heart condition. So she got some recognition. The only picture I've been actually been able to find of her online is of a drawing of her on a POG, uh, crediting her as the mother of the POG revival. Wow. What's the strategy that, like, the pile of, like, it feels like a table doesn't have much give, right? Or if, even mm. if you play it on hard ground. So you need, like, bounce, right, to get this to work. So is it, like, the pile of pogs is what you're throwing your slammer at? 
Exactly. You're throwing it usually right on the top of the pogs. You're going for a bit off center. Mm -hmm. You are trying to get it because like 20 of these pogs stacked up, they are cardboard. They've got a bit of bounce, a bit of give on them, especially. So if you like knock over the whole pile, you'll usually get a good flip. Now, it does get pretty harder as the number of pogs go down because after each hit, you take the ones that weren't flipped over, you reform the pile and you go again. Oh, it's always like a stack. Yeah, it's always a stack. Oh. And there's like a heads or tails to them, so you're always looking for a tails or something? Exactly. You flip them, you stack them up face down, and then any that flip face up, those are the ones that you win for that throw. So are you like throwing it straight down from above or like flicking it from the side, like trying to topple it Jenga style or what? That's a personal choice. (laughs) That is a question of technique as to how the people want to slam it. Uh, There are a lot of different ways to go from it from an angle, from straight up. There's official tournament grips that you can do with Hmm. the slammers. There's a lot of different options. Uh, I would say that you usually, yeah, you're trying to go from the top or just off of the top because hitting it from the side will knock the pile over but won't really reliably flip them. Right. When is it over, over? Like, do you have to go through all 20? And, like, if you can't flip the last one, if you're just hitting the hell out of it, do you give up after a while? Tournament rules, you got to go until it's done. But, (laughs) yeah, usually you give it up at a certain point. Now, there were, and I have two of them, tournament boards for playing Pogs on. And part of that has a sort of foam rubber mat Uh, on it. So that gives it a bit more bounce against it and a bit more give to flip the remaining few over rather than like a hard surface does it have like little rails or something to keep it from falling off the sides i feel like that would be a problem keep which from falling off the side like the pog if you hit it so hard it flies off the table is that oh no 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 it's just it's going off of there it's flying around and i mean that's uh can be a challenge when you're say hosting a tournament is making sure that the slammers especially because those are metal those are hard People are putting a lot of energy into it, you know, a lot of will, and they can go flying pretty good, too. So, so far, we've been lucky. We haven't had any problems with damaging venues. Pog-related injuries? Mm-hmm. No, we've been good so far, you know. <laughs> and is there, like, a weight limit on a Pog? I haven't set one. Uh, there have been a couple of slammers that definitely I think would be too hefty for Pog. Like you get like the solid metal, like nickel based slammers. And those are hefty ones. There was the mega slammer. This was a slammer that came with the second batch of Pogs I got. And what it was, it was, it was lathed metal. I think it was this column of metal, maybe a good inch and a half tall. Holy cow narrower it wasn't like a solid slug of the same diameter of a slammer but it was very heavy and to deal with that i actually gave that out as the prize you know the the cup for the first slam for hope (laughs) so uh is it do you just go back and forth like until it's over yep what we do at slam for hope because the first person who goes has such an advantage Mm -hmm. what we do is each match is two games of Pog, with each person going, taking a turn, going first. And then we total up the number of Pogs that each person flipped at the end of those two matches, and whoever has the most, they're the winner. And where's the uh, 
was was the tie how's the tie determined i don't think we've had a tie so far but in that case we would go with a sudden death flip off (laughs) so how does the uh how does the charity part work do you just donate the entry fees or are like people bidding on people (laughs) well we encourage all contestants to raise money you know you can do a pledge of you know so much money per pog flipped the main source of it is entry fees. We ask for a $15 entry fee to play in the tournament. If you want to just come watch, if you want to come and get some pogs, buy some pogs, that is free for entry. And when's the next When When is the fifth one? Fourth? Fourth? Fourth, fourth one, one happening? Fourth one is happening November 22nd, 7 p.m. here in Vancouver. It's at the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House, which is a community center just in between commercial and main street just a block east of fraser street is uh is is alcohol play a role in this we do serve alcoholic drinks themed alcoholic drinks at the slam for hopes Uh, i need to make sure we get the proper licenses and proper certificates and everything for the one coming up on the 22nd but yeah we're planning to sell some beverages there you know we it's... usually make a good passion fruit orange guava punch <laughs> nice it just seems like a like a one-armed sport you know like bowling or darts that you could easily keep drinking you know you should, I... or you could partner with a beer fest that might be a way to go in the future someday that could be we could do that we could do that we tend to actually have a bit of an issue with the liquor licenses and venues and stuff because in British Columbia, the liquor license, typical liquor license for a bar or a restaurant, prevents games of skill from being played <laughs> at the same place where the alcohol is served. So this actually caused a big problem for a video games bar in town. Oh, uh, man. That was called EXP. There's esports bars where you're just watching it, but this would be hmm. throwing like a LAN party of League of Legends or something technically might what are they trying to prevent that's a very strangely worded law i would guess that what they're trying to prevent is hustling mm-hmm. you know they're getting you know people drunk in the middle oh you want to put a little game of money on this pool sort of thing <laughs> now like how effective the law is in practice probably not so much because there is a pool hall or at least there was a pool hall when i lived there in victoria and they just had one large open area and at one side it was all the pool tables and on the other side it was all the drinking <laughs> so you would just go over there, drink, go back to pool. Technically legal, but exactly. <laughs> fascinating. So um, about how many people do you get showing up to these in the past? We usually get about 20, 25 people. I think we had 14 people actually play in the last tournament, Slam for Hope 3. Hmm. And then how much have you raised in the past? Last year, I believe we raised over $1,000. Nice. Because we had the entrance fees, we encouraged people to donate more, you know, on Slam for Hope's behalf to the, the charity. The charity, by the way, is BC Children's Hospital. Is it a regional hospital or just in Vancouver? Well, it's a, it is in Vancouver, but it services a lot of people coming in from all over the province. Yeah. Yeah, we also do corporate tournaments, uh, started with the last one, where we have preferably a team of two people from a company come in and, you know, fight on that company's behalf. And we give out an award both for, you know, the team that won and for the team that raised the most money. Hmm. 
I believe last year the Salesforce team was the one who championed there. And we'll see if they come back again for this one. So, uh, like this, um, did you play Pogs in the first first wave of it as a kid? I had Pogs. And the question of, like, did you play Pogs is, this gets into a very big core theme of Pogs, where I think a lot of kids, almost everyone I've talked to, they would say, like, oh, man, I remember having Pogs. Like, I, I don't remember playing them, but I remember, like, collecting <laughs> them and showing them off and that sort of thing. And that gets to one of the core, one of the attractions box in my mind is that it wasn't about the game itself. It was about the possession. It was about the collecting. It was about the acquiring and in that sort of like, like that childlike way of showing off. Yeah. So I don't think pogs were a big problem at schools because of sort of the gambling aspect of it because they were – Kids were playing it all the time. I think Pogs were a problem at school because kids would be boasting each other. Kids would get envious or jealous or sad that they didn't have these great Pogs. So this, you know, oh, Joey got this great Spider-Man Pog and I don't have any Pogs. And it was that sort of conflict, which I think really led to Pogs being banned from most schools. Right. That people were probably stealing them from each other or fighting exactly. about it. <laughs> That's funny. And then the Magic the Gathering people probably saw <laughs> the rise of Pogs and went, huh, let's just take the sport out of it entirely. <laughs> and let's just make it all about collecting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, it, they were pretty simultaneous fads at that time. You know, 1993, I believe, is when Magic the Gathering came out. 1992, still in development. But that idea of collecting was very common in the early 90s. You know, collecting comic books, collecting Magic the Gathering, collecting Pogs like all sorts of things and possessing them as a child was a very powerful urge i think it's funny that people people fondly remember pogs but yeah the sporting aspects it kind of went away instantly so it wasn't just slammers that people were collecting they're also collecting the main pogs too right oh yeah oh yeah so i from what i've you know sort of seen there were three waves to pogs in the 90s there was the World Pog Federation main line branded Pogs that came out from Canada Games. And those were usually fairly well produced, fairly sturdy cardboard, and had a lot of sort of the themes that they wanted to push. Like they had an official Pog mascot, Pog Man, which was sort of this <laughs> indes- indeterminately humanoid cave man sort of creature and then there was a second wave where all of the other companies that had intellectual property they wanted to put on pogs would come out with pogs that weren't branded as pogs so you had like sky caps or star discs but they were all the same sort of thing of images printed on circles of cardboard mm-hmm. and then you had the third wave which was just any Buddy looking to make some money off of this fad, pumping out whatever images on Pogs they could get their hands up. One of my best Pog finds was a box of cut but unpunched Pogs. Oh, cool. Three per sheet, still in the cardboard sheet. It was from a toy store that a friend of this person's parents had closed down. And 
it was really interesting a picture of the evolution of the Pog zeitgeist, of the themes that you would see on Pogs. Because starting out, I don't think the producers of this third wave had much of an idea of what kids would be interested in. So they would try everything. <laughs> they would try clip art. They would try photographs. Like I'm looking one here. You've got a t- picture of a tiger. You've got a really basic like illustrator three drawing of the pyramids. You've got some arms, just disembodied arms, just arm wrestling. You've got some unicorns. You've got all sorts of topics, like a very broad swath of topics. And they're all on fairly plain cardboard. And then you also have the same physical setup, three pogs, still cut but unpunched per sheet. And these ones are all eight balls, yin-yangs, and poison (laughs) on a holographic foil printed sheet. Ooh, fancy. Wow. My big question is still like where – there are those themes that were so prevalent of like poison and yin-yang and everything. And I'm still wondering how those came to be settled on. Like how did people – how did the publishers of Pogs decide like these are what we really want to push? Because it seems by the end they were all that. Yeah, it probably there probably is like a graduate thesis or something in sociology or design that, that is like here's the confluence of – um, semi copyrighted, like yeah, these were probably all on free clip art CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, they all had to like, so they all had to be. They couldn't be like intellectual property that was well known, but they probably needed to be like somewhat subversive, right, to get kids to think it was cool. Like a biohazard sign is the coolest thing in the world to a little kid. Like yeah. that's nuclear waste, man. Like that's they'll kill you instantly. Like and skulls and like. You know, there's some sort of performative aspects when I think back to, like, high school heavy metal kids. Like, yeah. it was more about having, like, a skull on your shirt or your jacket than it was about, like, actually liking Judas Priest or even playing a guitar at all. Like, half of it was just like, yeah, I'm into death and skulls and stuff, so I'm dangerous. <laughs> yeah, no, I suspect that a lot of it, or at least a good chunk of it, came from sort of skateboarding and tattoos sort of culture and like it just sort of filtered down into this eventually so like all the pogs ended up being like biohazards and skulls and poison and stuff like that yeah yeah i think that was like the main focus by the end of it and i think that the i i really do wonder like could they have kept the fad going longer if they had been able to rein it in if they had managed to have sort of a more diverse approach to it or did like you did like, okay, these three themes are really popular. We're only going to make these three themes. And then kids got tired of that fairly quickly. How did they sell them? Did they sell them in, like, you had to buy a pack of 10, then you had to buy a slammer. Is it like five bucks for a pack or something? Again, it sort of depends on the wave of Pogs. Right. Because there were the World Pog Federation and also sort of the second in line ones was Slammer Whammers. They would <laughs> sell it usually as packs, usually with one Slammer and then a bunch of Pogs. And for a lot of the licensed ones, say, like, you know, your Disney Gargoyles pogs, like you'd buy a pack of 12 or 8 or whatever pogs, just sort of in a little plastic bag, the same way you'd buy, like, a pack of Magic cards or a pack of trading cards or that sort of thing. Yeah, I wonder what the price points were. How much money do kids have in 1994? I think there were, like, a few dollars. Uh-huh. Like, uh, pogs, like, per the cardboard ones in that sort of delivery would be like between 25 cents each, 50 cents each, somewhere around there. But I remember growing up when we were buying Pogs 
And we, I grew up in a small town in the BC interior. So a lot of these fads usually took sort of a while to percolate to, to actually get there. We didn't have a ton of toy stores. We had Zellers for a while. We had a Toys and Wheels in the mall, but that shut down when the whole chain went bankrupt. But what I do remember is the dollar store in the mall, and this was a dollar store called Bucker 2, used to be a very large chain of dollar stores in Canada. <laughs> they had bins, just open-air bins of pogs, and I think they were like 10 cents each. And there was just all the unlicensed and, you know, made up strictly for pogs content and anything they could get from... Corel, 10,000 images, clip art CDs just poured in there. And you would just rummage through there for the ones that really caught your eye, caught your interest. And you'd buy them that way. That's nice. So uh, when you have events these days, are people sort of, are you having to teach everyone or do people remember? I usually have to do a refresher. People have usually have a vague memory of how to do it. Uh, they remember the idea of, you know, throwing the slammer at the pogs. But, you know, how many pogs and how to stack them and that sort of thing. Those are the details that get fuzzy over time. Has anyone shown up as like a repeat winner before? Yes. Yes. Oh, we, no. There's actual skill involved. <laughs> there is actual skill involved. So we actually had a very high level of uh, a good high level of drama at the last Slam for Hope. Oh, no. Because no, no, this was good. This was good. And I wish that. You know, somebody had been there to make like a documentary of the night because this was a saga. Because we had the returning first Slam for Hope champion, uh, whose name is Simon. Mm -hmm. And he had won first place at the first Slam for Hope. He hadn't quite done so well at the second Slam for Hope. So he was coming back for the third Slam for Hope, you know, to regain that crown. <laughs> That's right. We were also still, you know, looking for more people to fill it out. So one of the participants there called up his partner and she had never played pogs before but she came out to play guess what <laughs> she won she she was a she, ringer secretly oh i doubt i <laughs> i don't believe that you know i want to believe the underdog story of going in there and slamming it all the way to the top but she took it she took the wow. trophy that we had prepared which was a pog glued on to a seventh birthday trophy <laughs> she took the vhs copy of space jam oh wow she triumphed and we'll see if you know her name's lindsay we'll see if lindsay takes it again this year wow beginner's luck how many rounds did she have to win to get there well that was a good question uh it was like eight ish <laughs> a bit less than that all we right. did have we were do we were doing a single elimination tournament, but then I realized that the tournament was going to be over sooner than I wanted to, so we switched <laughs> it to a double elimination tournament. So was her technique different than anybody else's, or she just lucked out? You know, I think that there can be a lot of subconscious aspects to a technique. I don't think she came in thinking about the ways in which she was going to throw the slammer, but I think she quickly found a way that worked for her. Mm -hmm. So. It was all just nature. I think it's all just, you know, being confident in how you throw that slammer. Man, so this fourth one's just going to settle a lot of scores. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. This is going to be huge. It's going to be big. This should be live streamed to 23 million people around the world. Someday, maybe for the fifth <laughs> one. 
any last things you want to plug? Let me see. Well, November 22nd, I'll try to put this episode up right before mm. anyone in Vancouver can check you guys out. Do you have a yeah. website for it? Yeah, if you go to slamforhope.com. Right. Cool. That's got it right there. You can, if you want to play in the tournament and reserve your spot, please email us at slamforhope at gmail.com. Other things to plug, like I said, Spartacus Books. If you go to spartacusbooks.net, you can check us out there. If you want to check me out, I have a website at smasuch.com. All right, cool. Thanks for talking. Yeah, good talk to you. Yeah, I'm glad we got this uh, squared away. Pogs are so weird and fascinating to me because I was too old for it. Pogs. Pogs. for the show is Samaritan by The Long Winters on the album Putting the Days to Bed and that's courtesy of Farsuk Records and John Roderick. This show is sponsored by Fireside.fm, uh, the best and easiest podcast host I've ever used. If you host a podcast, definitely check it out at Fireside.fm. Thanks.